Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, Living History. A legend joins me this afternoon to discuss civil rights from 1957 until today. Minnie Jean Brown, The Little Rock Nine. Now, if you're unfamiliar with The Little Rock Nine, just do a quick Google and you're going to end up with thousands of hits. The Little Rock Nine took place in 1957. Nine little kids lined up outside Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. As their white brothers and sisters walked before them and entered the high school, they were stopped by bayonets and armed soldiers. There was only one reason that day why they were stopped, and that was the color of their skin. 1957, folks. The heart of the South. Minnie Jean Brown. The mob had grown quite a lot larger, and about 11 a.m., we were called to the office and told that we had to leave and we could hear the roar of the mob. We didn't see it. And we were placed in these cars. We were told to cover our heads, and they drove us out of a basement oh my God. driveway. And the, the cops were all scared, which was cracking me up. And they were told, once you drive out, don't stop for anything. So mm. they felt the danger. But in the meantime, on the news that night, the mob beat severely three black reporters. This afternoon, the story of Minnie Jean Brown and the Little Rock Nine, right now on Brent Holland. go back to the very beginning and just explain a basic synopsis of the Little Rock Nine, and then we'll go into the details, just to give people an overview. First of all, we have to understand that schools were white and black, and historically, black teachers were paid less than white teachers, and there was, I think, less paid per student for black kids. So at my school, although it was a new school, it was built, I know this is way too much detail, but this is No, those are good. This is good. Brown versus Board of Education at Topeka Supreme Court ruled that segregation of schools, public schools, was unconstitutional. And they had a line in the ruling that said, it hurts black children in a way that can't be undone. I think that they missed something because it also hurts white children in a way that can't be undone. So it was assumed that because education for blacks was underfunded and unequal, that the idea would be that if we all went to school together, it would be fairer, or at least that's how I thought. So in, after the Supreme Court decision, each school board or area has to present a plan. That's part of the decision-making process to desegregate. And Little Rock submitted a plan 
of, hmm, I found out later, 20 children in the high school. And based on the way they did it, it would have taken about 150 years to get down to elementary school. And they asked people who lived in the district to volunteer. I mean, it was very simple. It's a central district, and you want to go, sign up. And I did. And then over the summer, the school board said, well, you can go to school, but you can't participate in any activities. You will just go to school. Do you still want to go? And in the end, a certain number of us said yes. And it's my understanding that there were all kinds of background checks or whatever, whatever people do to try to discourage. uh, Well, you know, the whole idea that they chose, I think, the best students because they, too, believed that we couldn't compete with white kids. That's part of the American psyche, black inferiority, which was then and continues. I mean, they had to build this black inferiority because they had slaves, okay? So it's mm-hmm. a huge part of the American psyche. Their belief was they had to choose the best students to compete with white students. And apparently, I don't know how, was one of the people that they chose. And on the first day of school, I think of the 20, actually 10 went on the first day. And one girl's parents pulled her out after all the violence and hatred. That's the kind of story in a nutshell. But we have to remember, the governor called out the Arkansas National Guard. He didn't say why. He said to keep the peace. And I don't know racial codes. And I don't know if any black people knew those either. So everybody was trying to figure out why did he have the National Guard? I mean, he's keeping what peace? I don't, there's nothing happening. So, of course, we discovered on the first day that that peace he meant was to keep us out of school. Mm-hmm. So we have the issue of states' rights, we have Supreme Court decision, and that's kind of calling out state troops in opposition to federal law kind of gets a pretty amazing historical story. It's got all the components of American sort of history and process in it. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com You're 15 years old and, and you've got all these guards in front of you with their bayonets on, folks, by the way. And they're standing there pointing their guns at you. The main thing I think that was important was that they stepped aside to allow white kids in. And when we walked close to them, they closed ranks. So that was all the photos I see. We looked very bewildered because, you know, we've been brainwashed equally about liberty and justice for all. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really maybe one of the most disturbing moments I ever had and then or now to be prevented from going to school. I mean, I just felt like, oh my goodness, all this stuff I've done, all these beliefs, all this pledging, all these flag things that are so part of the American process didn't mean me. So that disturbed me greatly. And we did look really bewildered in the photos I see now. That's where we looked. We just were absolutely disturbed by what happened. I would have been absolutely also. Now, there was no one there to guide you through the doors, no administration or or anything? You were all ostracized by yourself? We didn't get in. We didn't get in. But nobody met you outside, eh? Well, you mean in terms of school people? Yeah. They all hid inside, I imagine. Of course. You know, they were part of it. 
Yeah. And I think, and then the next day, the school board filed an injunction to delay integration. So it seems to me they were all part of it that, oh, so we have the soldiers, we have the mob, they're just going to run home and never come back. So we did have to go to federal court to see what that was about, and the federal district court ruled that integration would not be delayed. Then um, Orville Favitz, who was the governor of Arkansas, was called to Camp David to talk to Eisenhower, and apparently they negotiated, and Governor Favitz removed the National Guard, and on the 23rd of September, we got in the school because there were no National Guard people to stop us. Mm-hmm. And we were protected by Little Rock Police. The mob had grown quite a lot larger. And about 11 a.m., we were called to the office and told that we had to leave. And we could hear the roar of the mob. We didn't see it. And we were placed in these cars. We were told to cover our heads. And they drove us out of a basement Oh my God! driveway. And the, the cops were all scared, which was cracking me up. And they were told, once you drive out, don't stop for anything. So Mm. they felt the danger. But in the meantime, on the news that night, the mob beat severely three black reporters. And thank goodness for the media, because they filmed it all, and it was there for everyone to see. And it's my belief that that caused Eisenhower to respond by sending the 101st Airborne on the 25th of September, and we went into the school surrounded by soldiers, and they were also inside the school, and we also had a personal guard. You had your own personal guard to accompany you. Did you become friends with the guard? Well, it was kind of, they were white, and mm-hmm. this is America, you know, this is... Yeah. This is uh, 1957. Um, I became friends with my guard because he took care of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't go into the class. But they could stop some of the things would happen that we later experienced in the hallways and all around. I have to ask you, what did your parents say? They must have been petrified every day you went to school. (laughs) I'm sure they were. I never talked to my parents about it. Is that right? Because I I think we all didn't because we didn't want them to know Hmm. what was happening. Mm -hmm. So we did the usual things when you get in home and your parents say, how was your day? You say, fine, really quickly and disappear. They were dealing with their own torture. My dad's business went under and stuff like that. So I'm sure they were horrified and frightened for us. But I think they felt that at least for that time that the 101st was there, that we were protected inside school. What they didn't know wouldn't hurt them, I think, was the way we thought about it. And then I think the Mm -hmm. 101st left in October. And we were, and I put in quotes, protected by the Arkansas National Guard. I mean, they were ordered to do so. Their protection was iffy. At best. Was there any instances that you can recall that they turned a blind eye? Oh, yeah. I mean, part of the the way that it was all sort of framed was if a teacher didn't see something, it didn't happen. So many of the attacks... I mean, you had the usual sort of in the halting of things body slammed against the lockers, and oh. we couldn't put our books in because 
people would actually pee in the lockers. Oh, and, my God. So we couldn't put our books in. The other fun thing about it was there were so many bomb threats that somebody had to go through all the lockers every night after school to check for bombs. So it was fun, fun, fun. Was the Ku Klux Klan involved in a lot of this? Were they very... You know what? I don't know. I know they had an organization called the Mother's League, who were always protesting at the Capitol, which was a segregationist group. And there was quite a lot of talk against integration in the churches. And it was an abomination against God and all kinds of stuff like that. Craziness. It's really interesting to me because those are Mm -hmm. the same signs that people are using now about health care. Let's talk about that. And and also lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered people. I I tell young people, gee whiz, 52 years. They just dragged out their old signs. People are people are people. I don't know when the world will learn that. Let's talk about health care. I know that's a passion of yours, and that's something that we take for granted here in Canada. Let's talk about some of the issues, if you'd like, that are going on right now in the United States. I'm horrified by what's happening. In fact, we have one senator who is standing, well, she's part of the Blue Dog Democrats, Okay. which horrifies me because I think Arkansas is one of the lowest health care states. But it's as if there's some kind of social blindness about what it could mean. I may think, I could think that the way it was framed was about, oh, we have to take care of those people who don't have insurance. But I think a person or a family Mm -hmm. should not have to go broke because they have an illness. I think that part of the framing was that it was taking care of others was the reason for health care, which really it isn't about others it's about everybody and the whole idea that to have something universal is socialism but who's yelling about the highways or any of those things that are taken care through everybody's contribution so it's a form of deep and abiding ignorance in my opinion i agree completely you're listening to the brent holland show for more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com. Let's shift and go back a little bit now. I really want to emphasize the tumultuous times, the dangerous times of the civil rights era, as I call it, although civil rights is still going on to this day, as you just mentioned. In 1957, Eisenhower was president. This was before President Kennedy, folks. This was before Bobby Kennedy became Attorney General. Martin Luther King. It had been, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Rosa Parks had her bus boycott started 1952, 53? No, it was 55, end of year 55. Forgive my ignorance. Wait, wait. And then they walked for a year. So if we want to talk about the public sort of known civil rights activity... Bus Boycott was first, and then Little Rock. So in the books, if we're looking at the modern era of black rights, mm-hmm. I mean, we have to realize civil rights include everybody. On the one hand, it's a black freedom movement, right, I think is what I would call it, actually, because of the social conditions that were so deplorable and life-threatening, I think is really key here. Rosa Parks, for for those of you who don't know, just do a Google on her. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, tons of material on the internet about her. She was a woman who was very tired one day and didn't want to sit at the back of the bus. 
And God love her, she said no. And that began a boycott, and it lasted a year, and uh, yeah, the buses were, were desegregated. Yeah, more than a year, which I think is a wonderful kind yeah. of sacrifice. And why does anybody care about the buses? I think that's key for the modern people. The deal was that there's a sign at the front of the bus, there's white seat from front, colored seat from rear. That was my growing up in Little Rock, as well as throughout the South. And it wasn't just where you sat, it was if the bus was empty in the part, it's at the door of a bus. If the bus was empty in the front, blacks still had to stand behind that line if they packed in. I know young people now love the back of the bus, so <laughs> they don't get why it made any sense. I think it's really important to explain that now you can choose to sit at the back of the bus if you want to, but then there was no choice, and that's key. I mean, so much about the black freedom movement was lack of choice and lack of access to just about everything. Washrooms, can't everything. Imagine. That's what I'm trying Washrooms, to get Washrooms, that's my favorite. Colored women downstairs in the basement, or colored men always in the basement somewhere, and flat women up on the floor, pink door, beautiful, well-appointed. I didn't know what a white restroom looked like mm -hmm. until I was almost a grown woman. To me, most of it was about saying, well, there was a, a Supreme Court decision called the Dred Scott decision in the late 1800s that said, no Negro has any rights that any white person should honor. Mm. Uh, so that, that's part of that thought process and feeling and building and teaching and persuading. And, and it goes through everything. I mean, it goes through history. It goes through literature. It, it's embedded in all aspects of the society. That's part of the problem, I think. It never got unembedded. It's still there, right, in this very sort of subtle way. You mentioned the washroom. Can I just tell you a quick story about Abraham Bolden, first American Secret Service agent, black African? Because he was a black man, in 1961, he was assigned the derogatory task of watching the washroom in Chicago on a, a little trip that Kennedy was taking to try and bolster his popularity, if you will. Wouldn't you know it, Kennedy had too many cups of coffee and he bounded down the stairs, saw Abraham Bolden at the bottom of the stairs and said, what are you doing here? Are you a police officer or are you a Secret Service agent? He said, no, sir, I'm a Secret Service agent from the Chicago office. He goes, how would you like to be the first African-American Secret service agent on my uh, White House protective staff. And he said, well, yeah. And that's how he became the first African-American Secret Service agent on protective duty. I think people in power have to see those things. Absolutely. Because they don't have the experience. Yeah. It requires them to say, this is unbelievable. Yeah. And I think that might have been what happened to the Kennedys. Certainly their lives hadn't been touched by discrimination. And so I guess they had to become aware in order to start thinking the way they did. Because there's no place in our society that helps people to think. Uh, actually, I feel as if we're so misinformed and so miseducated that I don't know how we can think any differently. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's still true. I want to say that. Cape Town, South Africa, school district uses the Little Rock story 
to help kids kind of understand. They are in the same position. They know nothing of the totality of apartheid, and they mm. use Little Rock as a way of helping them get a sense of their own experience, which I think is pretty amazing. I know Nova Scotia has a black history textbook in which the American and Canadian histories coincide or just juxtapose. Never mind, I won't even use that word. Juxtaposition? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the nearness of the two experiences. It's in all the curriculum. It's not just this sort of separate on the side in February kind of thing. And I think that's meaningful for all young people. We have to know our own histories of activism, whatever color we are. I agree with you. Because it is about people's having to take some action to make things work. That's how I see it. Have you ever been to Cape Town to give a talk? Yeah. In your wildest imagination when you were 15, did you know that you were going to become a legend and inspire so many people? Not a clue, and that's good. That keeps you honest, keeps you straight. Yeah, it's good. It unfolds, and I'm pleased that it has impact, that mm -hmm. it's meaningful. And I'm, at the age of 68, coming to understand it better as I grow older. And I'm absolutely fascinated by those kids in Little Rock, whoever they are, whether they're me or not. <laughs> uh, because I understand what they were up against. And it's good, I think, that we didn't know. Why is because that? Because we would have been... Because nobody is taught anything about racism. Everybody thinks they know and they have a belief system, but there's no real teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, I advocate anti-racism should be part of schooling so that people understand what is this? What is it about? How does it work? Do I want to be involved in this? So I don't think anybody knows, really. I don't. I'm an anti-racism trainer, facilitator, and it's grown people, children, teenagers, the level of not having any idea what it is, how it started, what it's about, how it has effect on both. You know, I say the Little Rock desegregation crisis hurt all the children, and that's what we have to understand, that we're all affected in a very negative way by it, by any kind of ism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to understand the relationship of power over as the basis for various kinds of discriminations. I mean, it doesn't just apply to black-white. It's across the board that any situation where one group oppresses another is about power. And so there's more of it, that discussion, in ideas about violence against women. But by and large, we're all ignorant about it, and uh, we just stay that way. This begs a question about the segregation in those days and how far we've come. There is a movement afoot to bring back segregation mm -hmm. And not in the way that it was before, but to have black schools for black children and white schools and black schools. In other words, if you want to go to a white or black school, that's fine, too. I know they tried to bring one in here in Toronto. The reason being, they said that black kids did better in all black schools. How do you feel about something like that after what you've been through? Well, George Day, who is, I mean, it's a quite discussed in the academic circles and... There's a huge kind of social problem, which is called black underachievement. And my belief is that because the whole integration thing is about an assimilationist model, that my thought when I was hoping to go to Central mm -hmm. was that there would be some kind of social exchange, that what I knew was as valuable as what anybody else knew. I believe that part of the 
underachievement is about the social messages about black inferiority and I guess that people try to counter that in some way by strengthening children's understanding of where they come from and what we don't acknowledge the contributions of any group except white people in our history books you know we're putting a couple of paragraphs here and there Hmm. but we haven't become I mean to the point that I mean this is going to be way off the mark no, that great civilizations like the Maya and the Egyptians had to have space people come in to build those. You know, we're, yeah, we're that yeah. stupid. You yeah. know, we really are. We will not affirm or, and that so much of European, I won't say conquering, I would say germ warfare thing, is about destroying everybody else's knowledge and claiming it. So my son wrote a paper mm-hmm. a few years back as a student in university and from Ronald Wright, who's, a, I'm not sure if he's an anthropologist, who said that at the time of conquest, Europe was ramshackle disease hovels. All the trees were cut down and people were just running out of resources. And the prof said, isn't this a little harsh? John Ralston Saul right now in his mm-hmm. new book, you know, he concurs with that. I mean, we have to tell truth. And this is about the so-called black schools. Why should history of Africa be an aside on the margins? And I think the people who want to do it, I'm an integrationist myself, but I consider that it's about exchange of information. And so far, we haven't gotten that. The dominant society wants itself to be dominant at all costs, right? And I think people are railing against that. And they're saying, we need some kids who have some sense of history that's bigger than what they're getting in school. And it doesn't say that I'm for them, but it says that I'm trying to understand it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm of the position as... Uh, as a white guy with a little bit of Inuit in me and a little bit of Cree and a little bit of Jamaican and all kinds of stuff mixed up, I want to do best by everybody. Right. And, it, and that's the way well, I see it. Well, it may or may not be necessary. You see, that's the thing. Right now, it may be necessary. And then at a given time, when we start to be more open to truth, it may be less necessary. But I think people are alarmed. I mean, that's one of the problems here in Little Rock. They're just saying, oh... There was a documentary called Little Rock Central High School 50 Years Later, mm-hmm, done mm-hmm, by two white filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And they have like two black kids in their advanced placement. That doesn't make sense. We're not all stupid. But someone told me a story of being in a small school. She has 40 kids around one computer, and she went to more actualized white school, and they each had computers. So people are, are not knowing what to do because it's such a problem. And I see it as one more experiment to try to come to terms with some of these problems. Do you think there is a singular solution to these problems, or do you think it's multifaceted? My, in the end, it's about education. And I know... Yes. I know that there is a real effort to be inclusive in the textbooks, and what I know about is Ontario. I know that because I've participated in that, in that inclusivity in terms of literature and thought and ideas, and so people are really working on it. So I'm not saying that there is no effort. I think there was a period when there was less effort, and I, I won't be political about it, but I think people might know when people who were in charge wanted everything to be more like the U.S. in different ways. That, again, is ignorance, and it perpetuates itself 
and everything else. And so it is about education in a basic way. And it is about more people of every possible hue being part of that education process. I'm sorry that it's still a problem. I'm deeply disturbed that it is and would like to do some kind of magic wand Mm. and fix it in the way that I would want it fixed. I'd like to thank Minnie Jean Brown for joining us this afternoon. That was part one of two. Part two will be heard immediately following this show or tomorrow, as your broadcaster will indicate. If I ruled the world, I would have the principles of nonviolence, children learning them in kindergarten. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing analytical tool. It helps you solve problems. It helps you think differently. And yet, when I go to schools, I say, the next time I come here, I want a social action. I want to see a mural with the principles of nonviolence. Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, part two of two, Minnie Jean Brown. Minnie Jean Brown, of course, one of the Little Rock Nine. Nine young people stood before armed guards, bayonets drawn, and were refused entry to an all-white high school in 1957. Minnie Jean Brown went on and met Dr. King, sat with Colin Powell, met presidents, and had an extraordinary, extraordinary, and still does have an extraordinary career. She is an inspiration to all. Today we talk about women's issues at length. Our social model in the Western world is violence. And as long as we have that, everybody else is going to fall in place. I worry so much about the effects of war on people and on women. Mm. That's a huge violence. That's an institutional violence that women can't undo. They can undo the thing on what they wear and whether they can drive cars. They are capable of that. But if they're in a war-torn area because we're dropping bombs on them, it's kind of hard. I'm talking about the huge institutional violence that brings all the other violences into play. I don't worry about women's ability to make changes in their lives, but we make it impossible. I do believe that we are part of that, making it really hard because people have to live in conditions of war that are the ultimate violences. This afternoon, the story of Minnie Jean Brown and the Little Rock Nine. Right now on Brent Holland. at the beginning. You're a 15-year-old young girl, and you're about to step into hell. You're outside Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas, 1957. Can you describe the times? Well, I think the background is that 
segregation by law was alive and well in Little Rock, and that included back of the bus, not being able to go downtown to the theater, and a certain day for the zoo, and all kinds of crazy, insane laws. And it seemed to me that I thought, well, young people, we can make this happen. I really thought that segregation was about a time that should have passed, and it was about old people. Now that I'm old, I understand a little more, but I thought certainly young people think the same that I do. They're smart, they are thoughtful, they worry about stupid parts of the society, and they would like to be part of a change, white students, I thought. So on the day that I signed up to go to Central, which was in May of 1957, that was my expectation. I mean, I have to say that I didn't understand institutional racism and all those things. That came later. So I think I can honestly say that no person I knew expected it to happen the way it did. Otherwise, my parents would have said no when I said I was going, and it would have just passed the possibility of desegregation. So the part that I think that's interesting is going on the first day and facing the soldiers who said I couldn't go in and being sandwiched between a mob of people screaming all kinds of things I hadn't ever considered before. And what happens to one's determination, I think. I know that their purpose was to discourage us, certainly caused my resolve to become firm. I will go no matter what. That's where we can start. Let's talk about that day then. I'm the kind of person who really believes that we have to live and be together, all of us. And that's the only way for me, for my personal richness in terms of the kind of person I want to be and what kinds of knowledges I need to have incorporated into my being. I've worked lots with Aboriginal peoples and Mm -hmm including the Inuit, and all it did was infuse me with more cultural richness and a bigger mind and expand my thought. And that's how I would like for people to see these things, that it's in their interest that we work together and be together. And we're brainwashed equally. There's the word difference used quite a lot, and I've decided that I'm going to call people on that, because what are we talking about? What is this difference? What is this? I don't even get it. And that when we use words like that and when we think like that, then we see. I don't want people to be colorblind. I love my color and I want everyone to see what it means in terms of my life in North America. But I want to value others and as well as have them value me for what I can bring. Those are the kinds of things that I'm looking forward to and have tried to Uh, make possible in my life and in the lives of others. You've inspired generations. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com I do want to talk about violence against women because I know you're a strong advocate for women's issues and to speak out against violence. You had mentioned the bus before being segregated to the back of the bus. My honey's Persian. She's from Iran, and she's been in Canada about five years now. She was telling me that in Iran, women have to go to the back of the bus in this day and age. And 
as you said, she would like the choice whether to cover or not cover. She doesn't cover here in Canada. She prefers not to, but she would like that choice to decide what's right for her, not have someone else decide that for her. Can we speak a little well, bit about your advocacy I'll, for I'll, women? Let me let me just tell you that for me, working with women from the Middle East, I almost preferred their kind of feminism to the one that I was used to because there's a sense of things have to be changed. And I, I feel as if those things, too, will be changed. I think in the Western world, we think that the way we change them is to attack them one way or another with some kind of military action. And that means that we don't trust the people to make their own changes and that people are capable, just as we were the Little Rock Nine, of coming to terms with enough is enough and they will change it. But we want them to be who we are. And I'm not sure if everybody wants to be who we are. Mm -hmm. And I know that with the election, everybody was in the streets. We didn't go in the streets when we saw all kinds of weird things happen in an, an election. So I have more faith in those women almost than I do in our women who will take action. And I think what happens is it gets too complicated because it's all involved in huger violence. You know, our model, our social model in the Western world is violence. And as long as we have that, everybody else is going to fall in place. I worry so much about the effects of war on people and on women. Mm. That's a huge violence. That's an institutional violence that women can't undo. They can undo the thing on what they wear and whether they can drive cars. They are capable of that. But if they're in a war-torn area because we're dropping bombs on them, it's kind of hard. I'm talking about the huge institutional violence that brings all the other violences into play. I don't worry about women's ability to make changes in their lives, but we make it impossible I do believe that we are part of that, making it really hard because people have to live in conditions of war that are the ultimate violences. That's a wonderful, profound perspective, and it is absolutely true. It is so crystal clear. I hope this is because I really want to know what I said. Well, you're talking about violence towards women, and the ultimate violence is war. Because then women are really subjugated to extreme violence. Yeah, and they have no, they can't they have, stop that. They can't right? stop it. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Let's talk about women being empowered. I did a study of El Salvador several years ago, just after the uh, the Civil War there. And when they brought in their new constitution, it was very well-meaning. They wanted to have 50% of the government, uh, the parliament, be women. The problem they faced was not enough women came forward to be candidates. Women, in general, tend to stay away from government. Why do you feel that is? Well, they might be busy rebuilding their lives after a civil war. That might be a possibility. Again, it comes in to restore their children and their families and, exactly. and have a certain contempt for government because it hasn't been forthcoming with the 
and being f- afraid. I mean, I think if we look at, I want to go back to Little Rock, because young people, I work with lots of young people in different ways, mm-hmm. and they say, oh, things are so bad. And I'm saying, no, let me just tell you how bad things were, and yet people came forward. I mean, in, in Mississippi, and you know, in Toronto, everywhere, people came forward. And so I feel that there's so much fear right now. And people are going to overcome that fear and say, you know what, enough of this. But if we don't, if we're not having discussions in university, if we're not allowing kids to talk, I remember living in Sudbury when the first some or other desert storm happened and my children were frightened. They were little and they were scared and children are scared by the things we do. We have to not think that it happens in a vacuum. We frighten our children with this stuff and and so yeah, I can imagine people would be scared, um, really scared. But it mm-hmm. changes. Do you have half women in the parliament in Canada? Do you have half women in the United States? Excuse me? Who are we talking about? Let's look at ourselves. That was my question to you. How do we make it more accessible for women to get into government? Hey, it's an old boys club. They don't want it. You know, they, they need educated too, right? Hey, they love it. It's great. You've watched all this crazy talk in the U.S. Congress. I mean, first, who would want to be there? And second, with the level of intelligence being minus 20. You know, my I'm a very strong role model person. I believe strongly in role models, and certainly you are that. There's no question. I believe that the more role models we have in any type of vocation, uh, more people will see the ability that, hey, I can do that too. Of course, and of course, and that's part of the having the reflection piece. I can see myself mirrored in this place, and that's, mm-hmm. that's why there have to be extra initiatives, right? And I think uh, for a while, I was asked to run for a party at one point. I had six kids. I did not have time and didn't feel that that was the place where I would be of the most you, in part, once you're sort of in the government, you're silenced. You can't be as crazy as you want to be. So maybe people feel that, too, that they can mm-hmm. be speak more truth outside government than they can in government. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it as we speak. Uh, I hadn't actually thought about it, but I'm thinking about it now. Why don't you run? I think that's just one way. I think that uh-huh. I have a very sharp tongue and nobody so? will tolerate me. Oh, come on. You say it um, as it is. You're not politically correct. I love it. I love it. You don't take any, no- you're no nonsense. You're straightforward and honest. And my God, we could use that big time. Somebody of your stature, your intelligence, your vision, your inspiration. Well, I've done some government work. Yeah, it's kind of fun. But it's also, yeah, I haven't, that's not, I threw that one out really quickly. And I do know people who are in governments in both countries, mm-hmm. and they're doing what they can. And those are there are people who want to do it that way. I and, understand. And I would lose my constituency of young people if I did something like that. I'm going to disagree Direct. with you on that one. I think you would bring more people into the political uh, realm. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com.
Com. Listen, I know you have to run. I would be amiss if I didn't mention two things, though. Dr. King and also your current president, Barack Obama. You want me to say something? You were alive during Dr. King's time, as was I, although I think I was two or three. But I still remember Dr. King, uh, and I also remember the day, unfortunately, he was murdered. Can you say something uh, about your own perspective of Dr. King and then maybe your own perspective of Barack Obama? Well, uh, when I met Dr. King, he was quite young. You met Dr. King as well as Jackie Robinson? I am so impressed. Well, I, you know, we were the second major publicized event, modern civil rights movement, so we're a small club. Little Rock Nine in 58 got the Spingarn Medal, and it is the highest, it's a medal given by the NAACP. And Dr. King got it in 1957, right after the bus boycott. And we were presented with it by him. And just recently in the 100th anniversary, is this too much talking? No, no, not at all. The 100th anniversary of the Spingarn Medal, five of the Little Rock Nine sat with Colin Powell and all kinds of cool people. And uh, my comment was, gee, we must really be important. We got this when we were 16 and 15, and they all got it as old guys. So that was funny uh, and fun. Absolutely. But it was a an amazing company uh, sitting on that stage and I felt the impact which I hadn't actually felt to that extent. So Dr. King at the time we knew him was not the major icon of civil rights at the time. He was just beginning. But what I can say is I watched him grow. I watched him have a very wonderful analysis of situations um, when he uh, understood about war as, well, he called it triple evils, war, racism, and poverty. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I think we talked mostly about his very nice speeches, but he became a thoughtful person and took great risks for his coming to terms with ideas and beliefs. So my admiration is unbelievable. You know, the I was thinking about assassinations in mm. in my life in a very brief period. President Kennedy, yeah. Dr. King, Malcolm X, Malcolm. Bobby Kennedy, uh, and they were all you know young men, and mm. what they might have become mm. is pretty interesting to me. That when I was 39, I wasn't that smart, and what their growth that could have happened would have been amazing and that's what i miss the potential that was lost in their death yes let's bring it up to modern times president barack obama oh well uh, i have great sympathy for him he certainly does carry the the weight of the world on his shoulders doesn't he yeah and the criticism is is unbelievable Mm. i mean i i'm sorry for that and his words resonate for me in terms of what he stands for, which is kind of what I hope I stand for, some kind of gathering of people, some coming together, despite Afghanistan, to look for different ways of solving problems. Unfortunately, he's talking to people who don't know what he's talking about. It's going to take some time. His words really resonate for me in a lot of ways. I know exactly what he's saying, and I, I believe very much the way I think he believes. I'm not sure if he can do what he believes 
because it's an awesome, awesome responsibility, and he came into some serious problems. But I, I think in other parts of the world, people can hear him. Yes. If we could get, if we could get ourselves to hear him, mm-hmm. we'd be better off for it. You know, you're going to laugh here in Canada. A poll was taken, and the most popular politician in Canada. President Obama. Isn't that cute? And I think it it resonates across the world as well. Well, people long for someone who speaks about, I think, the possibility of peace or coexistence. A vision. I think we all long for that. Mm -hmm. So I think he's done. I'm sorry about Afghanistan. I don't really know what to think about that. I'm I'm just not knowledgeable enough. I know what he thinks because I can hear him and I can mm-hmm. hear the words of his resonating in my body. Now, whether everybody else can hear that, I don't know. But it's about a headspace and it's about thinking a certain way. So I just wish him the best for sure. And I can't imagine a harder job. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, www.brenthollandshow.com. We're going to have to start to wrap up now, but you virtually have the whole of the Canadian university system listening to you right now. This show is syndicated right across the country through the university radio stations and television stations and stuff. What would you like to say to them? As you know, Mm -hmm. my thought process is really complicated, and I can't say anything in in a short burst. Can you? um, Please go ahead. I guess my sort of life is devoted to peacemaking, and that's across the board. I mean, it's not, you know, about war and peace. It's about life and peace that we start to use a language for young people that helps them negotiate a very complex world. And we just have too many words that are about division, uh, maybe developing a vocabulary of peace and peacemaking. That's my primary goal in life. And it does. It, it applies to violence against women. Violence. It applies to violences of poverty, racism, war, activity using his words, that to me, it has to start really early. I would, if I ruled the world, I would have the principles of nonviolence, children learning them in kindergarten. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing analytical tool. It helps you solve problems. It helps you think differently. And yet, when I go to schools, I say, the next time I come here, I want a social action. I want to see a mural with the principles of nonviolence. I want to see it framed. I want it here. And I've been told that when people start doing that, the climate of the school changes. So why can't we use those? Mm-hmm. Those principles of nonviolence collect the greatest thoughts of all our great teachers, and, and they put them together very simply. So that's what I'd like to say. Learn what they are and use them. What's the matter with us as human beings? We don't get it. I mean, we see it every day when we drive cars, too. People always want to cut someone off or get in front of them. Well, everybody likes to say that it's um, human nature. No, it's training. You may have something That's my opinion. We can just as easily train ourselves to be peaceful, but then how would the military-industrial complex get rich and all that stuff, right? Minnie Jean Brown, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to tell you, I'm elated right now. I feel like I'm walking on 
clouds, I am so inspired. And it has been such an honor for me to be able to speak with someone of your stature, of your vision for peace, for the world, and inspiration. I just want to thank you so much. Well, thank you for letting me talk. I think that it's an equal kind of situation. Thank you so much. We don't get as many opportunities. Thank you so much. I want to thank you again. All right. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Minnie Jean Brown is a profound thinker. Everything she says is well thought out and well articulated. This is a woman who cares about her common man. She is truly a legend. I want to thank you for joining us for the past two shows. Minnie Jean Brown, Little Rock Nine. And I hope those times are gone forever. And I hope that we can address the things that should be addressed in 2010 and move on from those stereotypes and that racism. Next week, Ephraim Zuroff, Nazi hunter. How many do you feel Nazi war criminals are still left out there? Oh, it's hundreds at least, if not thousands. That many, huh? Because if you know if you know the history of the Holocaust, you know that hundreds of thousands of non-Germans participated, not to mention the hundreds of thousands of Germans and Austrians. And some of the people were young, and with the progress of modern medicine today, these people live longer. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes half-jokingly say that people without a conscience live even longer. So many of them were alive and haven't been brought to justice. That's the reality. When someone like Ivan Demianuk is put on trial, it's obviously part of our obligation to the 29,000 Jews who were murdered in the Soviet war death camp during the period from March until September 1943 when he served as a Wachmann, an armed guard, uh, in that camp. I also want to add... Uh, another point, which is that very often people assume that during the many years that have passed since the crimes were committed, these people have reached a better understanding, you could say, of the situation, and that they regret uh, what they did. But I have to say that unfortunately that is not the case. And in all the cases that I've worked, that I've invested a lot of work in, there's never been a case of a Nazi war criminal who was in any way uh, recalcitrant or expressed any regret or remorse. The charter of Hamas, which is the equivalent of their constitution, clearly calls for the elimination of the state of Israel. Their military policies of indiscriminately attacking Israeli civilian centers, cities of, like Sperot, Ashkelon, even as far as Ashdod, basically show there is absolutely no concern for human life. The way that they use their own people as, as, as human shields, for example, shows that there's absolutely no respect for the individual, no obligation to observe the common norms of human rights. And therefore, we find ourselves fighting against a group or a government, if you will, has absolutely no scruples, no morals, and will do everything in its power to destroy us. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Thank you for joining us. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time.